Hi, this is Scott Young, the author of Ultra Learning, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Scott Young. Scott is a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects, such as attempting to complete MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months and learning four languages in one year. Scott lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is here to talk about his book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. Welcome, Scott. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Now, here, Scott, as you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I'm actually going to pick my grandfather. So this is my grandfather on my father's side. And what really influenced me about him was that he lived into his 90s, and he was always learning new things. So I remember there was a phase where he was learning like jewelry making, and there was a phase where he was learning, he, he could build things, he built his own house from scratch. And he, I remember in his 80s, he started to learn how to use computers, which of course was a new thing for him. And I always really admired this kind of gusto that he had for learning things. And I think it probably left a big influence on me. As he began his own learning projects, was it something he was very inclusive in? Did he, did you see him reaching out to others to help learn the skills and other people coming over to watch him maybe as he was building the house or something? Actually, he told me a story about this. And a lot of this took place when I was too young to really fully appreciate it. But he told me a story once about how he built his own house. And he had an engineering background, so he knew some of the details. And he told me, the only thing I didn't understand was like how to pour the foundation for the house. So I just walked over there and saw some people doing it. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then he went there back and did it. So I, I liked that kind of the casual, because I would never in my life probably think, oh yeah, I'm going to just get an empty lot and pour my own foundation. But that sort of bootstrap, do it yourself, figure things out attitude served him well in life. And it's something that I'd like to at least emulate. It's interesting how people's thresholds of what they believe they can do changes so greatly. So for instance, when we watch people on cooking shows, even people who have extraordinary understanding and training in the subject, many people think, oh yeah, I could do that. Yet you take something more complicated or technical, operate a nuclear power plant. Most people are not going to say, oh yeah, I watch, I, I could probably follow that along. Put me in the chair for a day. And I think that's one of the things that's very interesting is how those often flip that you have skills that people spend years perfecting and practicing. And just because of the nature of the skill, someone on the outside will look at it and say, oh yeah, I could probably do that. And then there's something that maybe actually isn't that hard to learn, but just because it involves maybe some math or it looks a little confusing in front of people, oh, I could never do that. And so I think this kind of reality and perception can often diverge when we're thinking about learning new things. So I'm going to go out of order here and just tell you that sentiment that you just conveyed is similar to what captivated my attention and got me so excited at a higher level when I read your book, Ultra Learning. And it's on page 37, and you say your deepest moments of happiness don't come from doing easy things. They come from realizing your potential and overcoming your limiting beliefs about yourself. And ultra learning offers a path to master those things that'll bring you that satisfaction and self-confidence. And what you just said is, is many people exclude themselves from many activities of life that could be really satisfying and rewarding because they don't think of themselves as being able to do that, or they don't identify with someone who's being able to do simple math, for instance. What do you think is, do you think that's still 
still is the biggest barrier that people face from taking on projects that could lead to that level of satisfaction and confidence. I think that what happens is that we often have these narrow experiences in our background where we felt like we weren't good at something. And it's not because we tried every single possible way to do it, usually. It's just we were in one class with one teacher and didn't go so well. And so we developed this feeling of I'm bad at math or I'm bad at languages or I'm bad at art. And there may be a grain of truth that maybe that's not your strongest suit. And so if you can avoid painting pictures for a living and you don't like doing it, then you don't have to. But at the same time, I feel like this can be a straitjacket that we feel very bound to those very small initial experiences. And so the kind of ethos of the book that I wanted to kind of show is that there's a much broader range of ways you could approach things. And very often, if you analyze it a little bit, and you learn a little bit about, okay, what's the right way to learn this, you can often make much more progress than you did naively before. So even in my own example, I use the case of learning languages. And my first attempt at learning French was a real struggle because I didn't know what ingredients had to go into making it work. And then shifting to learning Spanish a, a few years later with those ingredients made a huge difference. And I've met many people who've been through this kind of transformation where they had tried approaching something in a bad way, developed a little bit of a complex about it, but then they approached it in a different way, different environment, get a different result, and it's a 180. So I don't want to say everyone can become a genius or, or anything so exaggerated, but I do think that the more you realize that you've had a fairly limited set of educational experiences in your life, I think it just opens you up to at least the possibility that there might be a better way of doing things. Put. And one of the other distinctions I want to draw early on is that this is not a book that says only geniuses can learn things phenomenally. It's helping everyone who has the motivation and the discipline really to show up and continue to apply this to get uh, levels of mastery and accomplishment. It's very much focused on producing tangible gains in skills so that you could look at that and say, for goodness sake, I couldn't draw a profile and now I can. I couldn't converse in Korean and now I can. And these are things that people could look at and say, I, I decided I wanted to do this and I applied this method using my own background and skills and just use them to a better degree because I followed these nine steps in more of a systematic way to acquire that body of knowledge. Is that part of the message? And expand on that as to what else the aim of ultra learning was because you share a lot of things that people could use without having to change who they are. So one of the goals is, as you said, is to just show people that there's this real diversity of possibility. So as opposed to even saying, oh, that there's these nine exact steps you follow, it's just to say that maybe the way you did it was constrained in a way that you had this obstacle and maybe you could work around it. The other thing that I, I tried to do in the book was to try to go through the research and try to pull out what are the universal principles. So I focus on principles over steps because these are not so much a, a trick. This is, okay, this is some trick to use. It's when learning works well, what has to be there? And sometimes if you're not aware of that kind of ingredient, you approach a situation, you don't apply the ingredient, and you don't end up getting the results. So one of the examples that I think is really subtle and, and really important is the way that students, for instance, study is that they often will look over their notes over and over again. So they got a big test coming up, they go through their book, they look over their notes, or they do something superficially similar to that. Like they draw a concept map, or they transcribe the notes in a different format and use colored pens and this kind of thing. And it feels like studying. It feels like I'm doing something to help me prepare for the test. They feel like they really know it. They go to the test and they bomb it. And they say to themselves, the, the professor, they just asked really weird questions because I knew this. I, I spent so much time studying. How could I have not done well? And the thing they were missing is that actually there's all this research that shows that if you want to really do well on these kinds of tests, you have to do what's called retrieval practice, 
where you close the book and try to remember it from within as opposed to just looking at it. And that's a subtle little detail that's very easy to get wrong and very easy to convince yourself that you're just not good at learning when you're really just using the wrong technique. And that's crucial because people shouldn't make judgments if they followed an inferior method. And here you have illustrated principles that give yourself the best opportunity to show that you can learn something that you might not have been able to produce satisfactory results in before. Yeah. And I think that understanding these principles that really extend across all sorts of subjects is so valuable. So even if you know, you're not trying to do something super bold, you're not trying to learn six languages or accelerate a degree program or something, just knowing these principles, I think it changes how you approach certain tasks. Because definitely before I got really obsessed with this subject and learning a lot of this, it felt like sometimes I'd go and learn things and they'd stick and sometimes I'd struggle. Whereas now I feel like I can approach it with a much more analytical frame of mind where it's okay, if I wanted to get good at this, these would be the steps that I'd have to do. Now I still have to do all the work. So there's no shortcut for that. But at least knowing what those steps are, I think is really powerful because it gives you so much confidence when you go into things. So one of the first ultra learning projects that you took on probably before you'd coined the word, the term ultra learning was undertaking MIT's online curriculum and looking to get an approximation as, as close as possible to the undergraduate experience of a four year degree in a compressed period of time. You found that you could do a, a full course in a matter of a couple of days rather than weeks because you've really concentrated and structured it in a way that led to your being able to absorb it and apply it quickly. You shared your progress with that along the way. Do you feel like making that public was also one of the motivators to finish it? Or would you have finished it for intrinsic reasons because you just took it on as a challenge, you were going to do it? And how did that play into it once people started saying, wow, look at what you're doing, huh? Let's keep up with this. Oh, d definitely doing these projects publicly and doing them before the fact, like I'm announcing that I'm going to do it before I've actually done it has been huge for motivation. It would be really embarrassing for me to step down after. And I know that the project you're referring to this MIT challenge was this idea of, well, MIT actually uploads like lots of their resources. So it's just their whole video recordings of their class, the actual assignments with the solution key. And it just became this thought of mine of like, has anyone ever tried to try to replicate a degree program? You can't replicate it perfectly. There's no class presentations. If you write an essay, how are you going to grade it? But for a subject like computer science, you have exams with solution keys. And a lot of the programming assignments have these automatic graders where there's another program you attach your program to and it just tells you whether you got the right answers for this testing suite. And that's not perfect, but it's pretty good and it's free and you don't have to go to school. And, and there's all these possibilities too. Like you can download the lecture videos and watch them at twice the speed. It would take me to just watch the lectures, which admittedly is not everything involved in learning the material, but a, a course that would run over a semester, you could watch all the lectures in two days. You could actually do that. And this just opened up all these possibilities and I was very excited about it. And so I announced this project. And th the funny thing is that I got like a lot of negative feedback right at the beginning. And I didn't get that much negative feedback after I'd finished it, which was weird to me because I expected the opposite, that people would be more negative once I said that I did it rather than that I was going to do it. But it seemed like most people were just sort of struck by the boldness of saying that you're going to try to do this in a year. And when I was working on the project, that was a, a very big motivator because early on it was like, well, I really, I've announced this and people are like, okay, this guy thinks he's going to do this. So if I fail, then it's just going to be like, yep, I knew it. This was overconfidence here. So I really worked very hard on that project and all the projects I've done. But that being said, I didn't write the book for the idea that the average reader is going to go out and do exactly what I did. It was just to say, okay, if you take this as an extreme example, what principles and general lessons can we draw so that maybe if you wanted to do one class, or maybe if you wanted to learn a smaller subject, or maybe you want to do it over a longer period of time, how could you do it more? 
more efficiently. And so this is the real kind of message rather than necessarily the extreme projects that I use as examples. What I think is interesting, and I hope that listeners are really grasping the importance of this, is that we're in an age now where the half-life of a degree is probably less, fewer years than it took to gain the degree. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're studying some classic languages or something. But in business, in mathematics, in science, the fields are just burgeoning with new information, new discoveries all the time. And it's incumbent upon us to realize that in order to stay relevant and productive and useful, we really do need to stay abreast. We need to add to our toolkit and our repertoire so that if you're not developing these types of learning projects, it really is dangerous in some ways to not be acquainted with the changes that are going on in your business or your industry that could lead to opportunities or lead to risks for many people who are in business today and who have graduated with these degrees and maybe using an older toolkit or principles that don't have the latest information associated with them. What would you say to people who are saying, I've learned what I've needed to learn to get my job. Why should I put in the effort to continue to learn if I could get by with what I have learned? Yeah, I think it's become a bit of a cliche to say that, oh, we all need to be lifelong learners, but that doesn't make it any less true. I think what you've pointed out is exactly right. So some of the economics that I reviewed in the book were from David Otter, the MIT economist. And what he found was that there was a phenomenon he called skill polarization. So everyone knows that income inequality is rising. This is a common talking point that in the 1960s, we had a more equal society. And now the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer as, as the standard narrative. But one of the things that David Otter pointed out is that there's actually been a kind of split effect so that at the, the lower end of the incomes, there's been a complete Depression. So the at the end of the top ends, there's been a stretching out. And this kind of makes sense if you visualize it is there was middle class, you get the job and you just work at it. Maybe it's like a factory job, or maybe it's you're a clerk doing some kind of bookkeeping. And those jobs are the ones that are diminishing. And what is being replaced are the kind of lower skill, not very well paid jobs, as well as the super high paid, but also very difficult to get jobs that require a lot of skill. And so this picture of this kind of thinning out, which the economist Tyler Cohen called averages over, I think really epitomizes this idea that if you want to be in this sort of the nice half where you are getting increasing rewards to your skill, then you have to really take the attitude that I need to be constantly learning things. I need to be constantly upgrading my skills. And I think nowhere is that more true than in entrepreneurial domains, because even if you're an accountant, accounting hasn't changed so much. And so if you got an advanced degree, okay, you can probably float along. But if you're in the business environment, I know we're doing this as a podcast right now. Podcasting wasn't a thing that long ago. So many things have changed. And so you really have to embrace this lifelong learning attitude. I, th I think that's true. And it's important to make that distinction. It's not something that people say, you just don't respect me because I'm not in a skilled position. I think it comes from if you want more respect, choose to put yourself in a position that require the skills and then build the skills so that you can make better contributions to your work, to your team, to your department and your business's success. I think that everyone in every business and I'm remembering that you said that there was a an example that you came across from people who you've corresponded with in order to write ultra learning. There was a woman who worked, if I'm recalling correctly, no, there was a librarian who said in order to, she sees the handwriting on the, the wall and sees that a lot of the work that she used to be doing was now being automated and was being made available 
to the patrons were, didn't need to go through her. So she decided to study data visualization and analysis and created her own degree program and said to her boss, I'm not capable of doing these things. What is it that you know we can do in order for me to make more of a contribution to this organization? I think this is just a perfect example that librarians, it's a bit of an older profession and a lot of the functions that they often served being these kind of research liaisons and have Google has absorbed a lot of those functions. You can just type into Google now. You don't have to ask the librarian, okay, I'm looking for something like this and they have to know. And But the reverse of that is that if you are working in a public space, especially like libraries, there's so much data and people don't know what to do with it. You've computer generating all these records. And so I think that this is a, it's a probably a smaller shift than it seems from the outside, but I think this is a perfect example that the technolo technologization, this is a word that I struggled with in the audiobook too, the technologization of the workforce has often meant that you have someone who has a background in some kind of traditional skill. And if you can augment it with a strong technical competency, you can also take that skill much further. So I have a friend who works in the medical field, and he was saying how like all the work they're doing, a lot of the people struggle because they came up in an era where computers either weren't that important or that was handled by some person who computer stuff was their job. And now everyone's being expected to understand and work with this technology. And so the people who, for instance, can combine, oh, I'm a decent researcher in this, but I'm also really good at Excel. They often are the ones who have these skills that can just amplify because they can take the work that they're doing and make a template so that 10 other people can use it or that it can expand the reach of the skill they're using. One of the other things that I, I found very insightful and useful when I was reading about your language immersion experiment was your commitment to not speaking English during that year. And it goes back to actually your first day when you and your roommate landed in Barcelona and you met some girls there who were speaking English and you were committed to once you got off the plane speaking only Spanish. And you guys looked at each other's, does that start in 15 minutes from now or do we stick with the original plan? And share what happened during that story and what led to the event because I think it illustrates an important point. So just to give a bit of a background context, this was a project that I did probably about six or seven years now. And the idea was we wanted to travel, go on a trip. So we went to four different countries and the idea is we wanted to learn languages were there. And I had experience before learning French. I briefly mentioned it. The problem I found is that when you go to a place to try to learn the language and then you make all English speaking friends, you don't do so well. And so the idea was if you just started from the very first day, I'm only going to speak in, let's say, Spanish or, or in Mandarin. The idea was you could bootstrap this social environment around you that would reinforce this and you'd learn faster. This was the theory, at least before we left. And so Spain being the first country, we wanted to take it very seriously because this was okay. This is our test case. And so I remember us being, I think it was in Dusseldorf and this is okay. The next flight, once we're off this plane, we're no longer speaking English for a year, potentially. It was like a little nerve wracking and we didn't speak that much Spanish. So we got on the plane and then I remember us getting off there. We were in Valencia and it was in the little subway thing. Two English girls started talking to us and we were looking at each other like, okay, what do we do? So we sputtered out a little bit of Spanish and they got really frustrated with us. Ah, these people don't speak any English. And then they left and it was just for us this first, okay, this is our first little obstacle because it's clear these two girls did not speak any Spanish. So we couldn't even attempt to, to communicate to them. Now, I don't think you need to go that far in all circumstances, but I think that taking this sort of zealousness to the project in the beginning, it really worked. It seems a little ridiculous recounting that story now, but by the time we were done in Spain, we had a whole group of friends. We were really living life and it was totally normal to be speaking in Spanish all the time, every day. And I think that's something that after three months, I think for a lot of people would, at least for me before, would have been very surprising that was even possible. You had the commitment to him that you guys were going to do that. I think that made it a stronger commitment to the overall 
overall project is that you had a buddy in this with you and you didn't want to let him down. He didn't want to let you down. I think there's a part of that when people take on these projects that if you could make accountability partners and develop a relationship for the purpose of that, it strengthens your ability to see your ultra learning project through to its conclusion. I think you definitely want to get some kind of system to hold you accountable. So we were just talking about how doing these projects publicly put a lot of pressure on me. This is the rule that we're not going to speak in English. I think if we had not been doing it publicly, we've been like, oh, okay, it's fine. We'll just slack off a little bit. And I think going with a an accountability partner can be good, but I will caution that sometimes it can backfire if the other person's not that committed. So if you're doing something like this and the other person's like, hey, I'm not really going to do that though, then this could create some friction. So I think the, the right idea going into a project where you want to co-opt someone or, or get some support is to make sure that you're both leaning on each other, but you're both committed and you're both that's an accelerating commitment. Whereas if you're leaning on someone and they're not standing very tall, then you're just going to topple over. So I think there are certainly projects which benefit from having that kind of accountability. But I would also stress that trying to get a less than enthusiastic person to do something with you and you're going to depend on them for motivation is not always the best approach. I think doing things publicly or making it a challenge or announcing it sometimes can be better because you put that pressure on yourself without asking another person to also be doing it perfectly. That's a really a good point and a fundamental principle is that if you're going to have an accountability partner to make sure that they are sufficiently committed and probably no accountability partner is better than a weak accountability partner. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And I think accountability partners as well, it should be something they, they work really well when you don't need them. They work really well when I was going to do this regardless and this other person is going to do it regardless. And now we're even more committed to doing this. But I think also accountability, it's not even just having accountability, having a partner or someone else you do a project with can make it feel more exciting and more fun. Like I think if I had done that project alone, I might have felt more isolated. And in this case, it was fun because I was going on a trip with my friend and I had that comrade to go with you. So I don't want to say that accountability is the only reason to do something with someone else. I think learning in groups and doing an activity as part of a team, as part of a partnership can be really valuable just for that feeling of your sharing experience with someone. One of the people who you studied in the book to understand how he worked and how you could find certain shortcuts to learning things and adapting them quickly was Richard Feynman, the renowned physicist, Nobel Prize winner, Princeton. Was it Princeton or where did he? He graduated from Princeton. I want to say that he taught at Caltech, but I don't quote me on that. I'd have to go look through his bio to see where he was teaching. Yeah. So all around amazing guy, but also who was curious in a lot of different areas and came and developed a reputation as someone who could come to amazingly accurate conclusions with just a glancing cursory view of particular information. One time he did this looking at a submarine blueprint. What happened was he looked at it and they said, this is what we're planning on building. He says, what's that right there? And he happened to point to something that was a weakness in their diagram. And as they discussed it, they said, oh my gosh, he'd never studied submarine architecture before, but was able to find a weakness in it just after glancing at it for a minute or so. He knew things from his professional life that helped him how we can use that same process of looking for what we already know to learn even more faster, deeper, or better. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah, Richard Feynman is one of my all-time intellectual heroes, not only just because of how obviously smart and brilliant he was, but he had a certain maverick kind of rebellious quality that I found very appealing in myself and just that his willing to go against established thinking and authorities irreverence. So definitely highly recommend his biography. One of the things that I wanted to point out about him is that he was clearly very smart, but there's a lot of research that shows that the way that he was smart often depended on him 
him having a lot of acquired knowledge. And so there is a kind of perception when we talk about geniuses like Feynman, who was definitely a genius, is that there is a sense that, okay, this person is just incomprehensibly smart. And the point I was making is that if you even follow Feynman's own descriptions of how he was able to do some of these things, what is that, yes, he was very smart, but it was built on a lot of knowledge. And so your submarine example, I don't know that one in particular, but it's an example that would probably lend credit to this idea that because he knew so much about physics and he had internalized all these patterns, he could just look at something and be like, oh, that's funky or that's going to be wrong. So I think that is the, the bigger lesson is that to be more like Feynman, we ought to spend time kind of cultivating this sort of deep reservoirs of knowledge and experience. And that the way that you often do this is by going out and doing projects where you're learning a lot of things. And so the fact that he spent so much time working tenaciously on these difficult problems and acquiring these patterns, I think says something. Obviously, I'm not trying to explain that if we just all spend lots of time doing that, we would all be Richard Feynman. But rather, I think the more you understand it in that way, that this kind of genius that he possessed was built on knowledge rather than just being magic, I think the more you can hope for emulating some of those aspects, even if you're not going to be a Nobel Prize winner, let's say. Yeah, there are a lot of the principles that could be applied in our everyday learning, in our everyday work lives. And I, I think that was inspiring based upon the fact that it is always built upon knowledge that we have. And it's our choice to continue to build and deepen our knowledge in whatever fields we choose. Say, Scott, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Sure, I'll do my best. Here we go. So we talked, we opened up and talked at the beginning of the interview about someone who influenced and inspired you. When you were a teenager, Scott, who, what's a song that you loved? I listened to a lot of electronic music, so I would say that I probably Daft Punk, something from Daft Punk. Do you remember a particular song or lyric that was meaningful? I do remember I really liked the harder, better, faster, stronger. That was a favorite too. As part of your mission with Ultra Learning, do you want to help us realize that there's so much more that we can learn and there's satisfaction in learning those things and there are principles and techniques that we can use to make our own learning journeys more successful, interesting, and rewarding? What do you find to be one of the most effective ways of getting your message out week in and week out in order to do that? Blogging. Definitely writing your ideas on a regular basis has been hugely beneficial for me. What's a tip that you've found that helps get wider attention and interest in the work that you're doing? Definitely social media and things like Medium and all these types of things where your content can be shared algorithmically help a lot. But I think fundamentally, it's if you have really compelling content, it'll get found. What's the best business advice you've ever received? Maybe not the best business advice, but one that's really memorable is never be too cheap with lawyers and accountants. <laughs> if you think back over the last six months or so, what's a, a memorable purchase of about $100 or so that you look back on and just so glad that you made? I got a really good book about biology that I really liked. It's I'm, I think I'd have to find, I think it's like the machinery of the cell has got pictures. I think it was about 50 bucks. That's the one that's reminding me right now that I like, but that's also me. With the book, what is it that, what are the illustrations great? Yeah, really good illustrations. It just shows how things work, like actually trying to draw what it would actually look like, which I, I just thought was fascinating. And what's your personal definition of success? I think the my personal definition of success is when you are able to do the things that you want to do. And so having that freedom, I think is really important. So for you, how have you exercised the freedom? I've really designed my whole life around that. So I do the kind of writing I like to write. I do learn the things I like to learn. I make sure I have time off for my family. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most personal satisfaction? I have really cut back on a lot of unnecessary kind of speaking and meeting engagements. And I found I focused more on my writing, which has made me a lot happier. The pandemic had lockdown has helped in that regard, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. So let's talk about what happens in 
our day-to-day work lives now where we have a different set of distractions, where we may not have people dropping by our desk and asking us questions or even socializing at a kitchen counter or something at the office. What are the types of distractions that you find that you and, and your team and other colleagues that you work with are facing? And how can you apply ultra learning to designing an environment that's more conducive to being learning to learning and productivity? I had a baby last year, so I can definitely speak about the challenges of becoming a father when it comes to distractions. And I think one of the things that really helped was talking with my wife and setting up schedules and routines. I think you can be a lot more loosey-goosey when you're on your own, but when you have kids, you have to stick to that schedule. And I think that's very important. And I think that's applicable whether you're a new parent, whether you are just looking to not be distracted by the household and focus on doing your work during work hours and maybe drawing boundaries to not be focused on work during personal hours. Have you found anything that you've changed that's helped you more than you expected in terms of those kinds of boundaries and routines? Somewhat ironically, we ended up getting a small office space that I could work. And that was huge because doing podcasts like these where there's a baby sleeping in the other room was becoming a bit difficult at home. And so this also has helped keep the personal and professional spaces separate. Scott, I want to thank you. You've been so generous with sharing your ideas and experiences on my quest for the best. We talked about how your grandfather inspired you to just take on learning projects that were bold, where he developed things from custom jewelry to building his own house. And you took inspiration from that. You talked about how ultra learning leads to the diversity of possibility for people so that it's more than just what you thought, but it it allows for a lot of different experiences and bodies of knowledge to be developed. We talked about the importance of having universal principles as part of your study. And the more that you can apply them and develop the steps and the structure that'll lead to success, the better off you'll be. We discussed how average is over. There's It's being squeezed out of the middle. And even though this is happening on a, an economic and sociological scale, we can make individual decisions about where we want our experience to be based upon our vision to develop new skills and our ability to acquire those skills and knowledge that'll lead to having the kind of freedom that we want in our lives. And we had a good chance to chat about experiences about Richard Feynman, and he was a hero of mine growing up as well. So I enjoyed that tremendously. So for these reasons and so many more, Scott Young, author of Ultra Learning, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much for having me. And Scott, before we say goodbye for now, tell me where can we find more about you and your work online? So I highly recommend that people check out my website, scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-H-Y-L-U-N-G.com. Scott, we will link to your website, We'll link to your social media. We'll link to places where people can buy the book as well as Audible versions so that they can learn in a style that's most interesting and engaging for them. And just want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much.